Welcome to Malts and Music, a brand new podcast brought to you by the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. My name is Vic Galloway. I'm a broadcaster, author, musician, and lifelong music fan. I'm also a massive whiskey fan. This podcast is inspired by my own experience of pairing up 12 single cask malt whiskey flavour profiles with 12 music genres. I thought, let's do something similar. Get some creative people to pair up five tracks with five delicious whiskies. We also talk about their lives, their careers, their experiences, and go off on various tangents. Enjoy. Slange. Justin Curry, welcome to Malts and Music. Thank you very much. It's good to see you. We're in this very... Um well, how would you describe this room, Vic? It's uh, it's not formal, but it's it, it's redolent of maybe of a gentleman's club in uh, St James or St James's or somewhere. It's the tasting room at the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society in Leith in Edinburgh. There's a bit of peat on the wall there, another bit of peat there, an antique bark peeler. It's all whiskey um, associated. Oh, you actually know what these tools are? Not really. <laughs> that one peels bark. <laughs> There's a label. Yeah, um, I feel underdressed is what I'm saying. I feel like I should have dressed up a bit. This is the I, rock and roll thing. Okay, see, don't worry about it. You're perfectly dressed. You're overdressed. <laughs> Thank you. I feel. If more you were Iggy Pop, you'd be stripped to the waist. So yes, yeah, uh, so he was on another advert recently, posing on a beach, and it's just, it's a bridge too far for me. I yeah, mean, I I kind of let him go with the insur- car insurance ads, but now there's some travel ad that's yeah. Well, please. The thing with Iggy, I think, is that he, he was ignored and um, basically despised by the music-buying public and gig-going public for decades. And he never made any money either. No, yeah, so I don't yeah. begrudge him any of these no, things. No, I don't either. I don't either. But. Uh, but, but it is kind of strange. Anyway, let's talk music and whiskey. Yes. Um, first and foremost, we should tell everyone there's a Spotify playlist which will have your five choices. We've got five drams. You're pairing them with five pieces of music. They'll all be up on the playlist, uh, which is exciting. How did you get on with it? Just as a, it's a bit esoteric. It's a bit odd. Well, I realised that uh, tastes and smells don't really have musical. They don't key off musical references at all for me. Maybe visual things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like a, a certain, you know, if I drink a shot of Laphroaig and add a bit of water to it in a pub I might think of a cloudy day in the Highlands or something I know that's mm-hmm. just a really obvious cliche but I wouldn't think of some brooding Beethoven chords or anything so I find, I find the concept really difficult I was talking to a, a friend of mine um, last night who's a violinist and she was saying that that just seems bonkers uh, and I said yeah I'm kind of, kind of struggling with that but I, I got there in the end but yeah, music and the the only time music and food were ever really close to interlinked for me was when years ago we we were on a had a day off on an American tour and we were in a place called Toledo, Ohio, in a a hall at the end, half of which had had been burnt in a fire, but we were in the bit that had been burnt by a fire because it was cheap. Right. And we went to an Indian restaurant and we all took acid, mm-hmm. and. The music they were playing in this Indian restaurant, it wasn't even an Indian restaurant, it was just a pretend Indian restaurant in the middle of Ohio. The music they were playing sounded like sort of Jimi Hendrix, but done by sort of Muzak musicians. Okay. Uh, Very strange music. And then at one point I noticed our crew guy, Brian, was spooning the food, the sauce that he put onto his plate, was spooning it back into the, the sauce bowl. 
And he realised that if you put too much sauce on your plate, the music got louder. <laughs> <laughs> and so we all, started, we all started spinning our curry sauce back back onto the into the little sauce boats that they supplied. And indeed, the music did get quiet. Really? That, that, that's it, the closest association between food and music. Are you sure that's not the psychedelic experience? Though, it was, it was definitely the acid, but the food the, the food was psychedelic enough, actually, without the... Without, without taking the LSD. Oh, no, I, it sounds like a pretty psychedelic uh, Toledo, um, <laughs> a, 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 a fake Indian restaurant. Well, they, didn't have, they, they did not have a South Asian community in Toledo. I can right. tell you that for nothing because the food was utterly bizarre. It was the, the most bizarre interpretation of Indian food I've ever heard. And that was not Jimi Hendrix on the stereo. Yeah. That was an imposter. <laughs> well, um, I, it's funny, like all the guests on Maltz and Music so far, people have approached things in completely different ways. Uh, a lot of them have said, yes, I find this, uh, you know, a really natural pairing. Yeah, yeah. But most people have said initially, the first drama or two, I, I, I wasn't sure if I was doing it right. There's no right or wrong with something like this. Yeah. Um, it was, the whole podcast was inspired by me pairing 12 flavour profiles, single malt whiskies from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society with 12 genres of music. I was the same. Uh-huh. But then I think with some of the tasting notes the, th- uh, the, the experts suggest and just, you know, relaxing into it and uh-huh. enjoying it. And perhaps, you know, you're going to have certain tracks that you like uh-huh. and certain artists that you like. You're probably going to find a whiskey that goes with one of those artists. When I initially asked you to do this, you said, I'll just choose five Tim Harden tracks. Yeah. But you've actually not chosen any. No, I forgot, because I'd forgotten about that. That would have been quite a good concept, actually, because his voice sounds like whiskey, although it maybe sounds a bit like bourbon. Uh, but uh, isn't whiskey, isn't it put in bourbon casks anyway? Yeah, well, a lot so, of them are, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, and there's, there's a few, you know, you, there's a few really obvious associations to people who kind of sing about whiskey, I guess, you know, like Tom Waits, who, mm-hmm. who I think is a bit of a charlatan. Um, and again, Tim Harden. I was trying to think of female artists that would... Um, there's, there's, there's one female artist I've chosen I think is sort of related to whiskey. I feel that she's got a... Well, she's well, some, she somehow has, has, has a kind of whiskey... The whiskiness about her, they're, they're, you know. two, You've got two female artists and the first dram is paired up with a female artist. Right. So shall we crack in? Let's and, do it. And, and start. So we've got our little tasting cards, the five dram pack. So we're going for a know. punch and a pout, honey and heft. Yeah, which is a hell of a long, hell of a long name for a whiskey. Yeah, the, the, the experts, the whiskey society experts, um, always have these br- brilliant names. Some of them are totally bizarre. Um, so are these kind of experiments, or are they, or, or, or is there a a run of bottles of these things. Do you know oh, what there's a run it? of bottles, right. yeah, okay. yeah. So, um, and the the numbers on the tasting cards refer to the distillery and the cask number. Right. Okay, um, that's all Greek to me. So this is... Um, I'm Listeners, I am opening my tasting notes, which I didn't, I didn't do previously. Virtual tasting. A What's a virtual tasting? Oh, right, I'm sorry. Yes. A punch and a pout, honey and heft. It's a Highland whisky. It's 20 years old. Um, 55.1% in a refill ex-bourbon hogshead cask. Um, It says, I'll read out some of these tasting notes and then we'll have a sip. Uh, The nose began with garden sheds, honey on telephone poles and balsamic. 
Then it showed its seductive side with ice cream sundaes, strawberry, mevy and cranachan. But soon the wind changed again, bringing driftwood bonfires and coffee beans in hessian sacks. Lots of different... You see, it's, all, it's so psychological, because when you're saying all those tasting terms... I feel like, like I feel like I got the ice cream thing, and I definitely I've no, you've tasted these before. I haven't, so I'm definitely getting strawberry mivy on on the yeah. nose. I mean, de- look, it's it's definitely a malt whiskey. I know I know that much, but it's Cranigan, got it, right. So we do have a. But it's quite sweet. It's quite slange. sweet smelling, right? Slange. It's definitely definitely sweet smelling. Hmm. And this is a. For for all of you watching, listening, who know the flavour profiles, this is a lightly peated, and it is. And it's a very light colour, right? It's, would you say that's a light colour? Yeah, I would say that is a light colour, yeah. And it's actually quite, it's quite pleasant. It's very pleasant. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, whiskey aficionados, I, I would never claim to be a whisk, whisk, no, whiskey expert. I, I love music and I love whiskey, and that's why this whole programme's come together. But... Um, this is very sippable, very drinkable, yeah. very easy to go down. Yes, I mean, not a. <clears throat> it doesn't bludgeon you like something like Laphroaig does, or one of those big, mad. Are they, are they Isla yeah. whiskies? Yeah, yeah, Isla. Yeah. 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 So tend to be, although you do get heavily peated whiskies from other regions now, right. but famously, yeah, from the. I always West think Coast. those those things smell a bit like manure, which I like. <laughs> They've got a kind of oily, dungy mm-hmm. smell to them, which which really. I find quite exciting because it's you know it doesn't smell like food, but this is <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely getting the cranachan and the strawberry mivy. Um, What's cranachan? Um, oats and raspberries and cream right. oh, yeah. and right. whiskey. Actually, Scottish dessert, right? Yeah, right. Scottish dessert. It's yeah, yeah, delicious. When done well, it's unbeatable. So you have paired this with um, Manhattan by Cat Power. Ah. Well, so, it's sophisticated. Yeah. Manhattan sophisticated or as um, associated with sophistication. I can imagine Cat Power drinking whiskey. I don't know if she, if she does or did. I'm pretty sure she, she <laughs> certainly did. Can I, I can just... Um, and, well, the, the, the name in the bottle... Why did the... Maybe the pout or something took me there. Um... I think cat power and whiskey are a perfect match. Yeah, she's got that smoky, ever so slightly damaged kind of vocal yeah, yeah. tone, but um, she's got a, a, a real character to her voice. I mean, she's no by no means the greatest sort of showboat vocalist in the world, but she's just got a real yeah, tone she, to her voice. She's got a lot she? of soul in her voice. I think maybe this whiskey is slightly too pretty for for cat power, but um, Manhattan's she's a quite a woman. She is, but Manhattan's quite a pretty song. It's got uh, and it's got a lot of space in it. It's not too dense. It's a it's so a maybe, maybe it's a three quarter. It's very simple. The yeah, song. yeah, loads of space and there's something very. I love that whole album. It's just got a the album um, Sun. Yeah, it's just got a real vibe to it. Um, the lyrics are really mysterious. She's one of those writers um, whose songs I never understand, but I just find really moving. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird, and you don't know why you're moved by them. Uh, you know, I, I instinctively feel, even though I don't under, understand what she's on about, that it's not rubbish. That she knows what she's on about, and I always quite like that. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, I, I think I wish more people approached listening to lyrics in that way because I, I, I completely see your point there. It's like she 
maybe talking in riddles and mysteries, mm-hmm. but she means it. <laughs> yeah, and, she, and she'll have a picture in her head and she'll know the story she's telling. I mean, I think Dylan's like that. A few, a, a few years ago, well, quite, quite a number of years ago, I, I, I sort of set about learning sort of long Dylan songs off by heart just to try and understand them. So I learned like a Rolling Stone first, which I, I previously hadn't understood, and then kind of got inside that. And then I learned um, Desolation Row, which I still do not understand. But having learned it, it took me about 10 weeks to sort of get it down in, in my head. Um, and when you say learn it, you mean I mean, I could instinctively... Rec- I mean, I could, just re- I could recite it in a pub, you know. I could okay, just, right. Just do the whole thing, uh, or, sing, or sing it. Um, and in doing that, I... I discovered, I certainly found out that he knew exactly what he was talking about in every single verse and, and rhyme and word of that song, but I'm fucked if I can figure it out. But some of them you can figure, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a verse about, convinced there's a verse about John, John Lennon. But anyway, my point is, I, I don't like songwriters, I don't like the sound of lyrics if somebody, I mean Jim Morrison maybe did this a bit, if somebody's just trying to sound clever and mysterious and Ooh, interesting words thrown together in a mm-hmm. random order. Right. Uh, whereas if they're mysterious sounding and I don't know what they're on about, but I'm pretty sure they know what they're on about, then I'm completely convinced by it. What, what about, sort of, say, Bowie's kind of cut-up techniques and so on, which he, which he sort of talked about publicly. He, he just sort of wanted to yeah. swap things around and try things out and would take a song, write it in a particular order and then chop it up. And uh, yeah, You see, they just... I think they are... Totally meaningless. Well, not totally meaningless, but they've got. They're a bit random in terms of the stories they're telling. Like things from Hunky Dory, like um, uh, um, um, beating up the wrong guy. Da, da. Um, look at that! Look at those cavemen go. What's that? Oh, the life on Mars. Life on Mars. Um, stuff like that, which I've learned in the past. Um, uh, I, I really like that as well. Just just because all the vowel sounds are so good and they're on mm. the right place, I don't really care that it's gobbledygook. Mm. Uh, there seems to be some sincerity behind it. I just don't like, I just don't like pretentious writing where people are trying to. I mean, that prog rock was full of full of that, and I, I was right into prog rock before punk rock saved me, yeah. and that was full of like really big words and and lavish descriptions of nature or science fiction landscapes and things. And I was terribly impressed by it as a teenager, and I thought, I thought the other people at my school would be terribly impressed if I had some understanding of this music. And then punk rock sort of taught me that it was just all really insincere and really um, pretentious. When yeah. you read novels, books, I mean, I don't know, are you uh, yeah, an read, avid reader? Uh, yeah. Um, do you like literature that's kind of fairly stripped to the bone and I don't uh, like too much poetry I've read books by poets whose poetry I've liked and I've not liked their their prose because sometimes I think poets are trying too hard to be poetic instead of just telling the story Um, I like writers that just like Evelyn Waugh people who just surprise you with an incredibly lyrical turn of phrase at the end of a chapter in the midst of quite light stripped down sort of writing Mm -hmm. um and the irony of that is that, is that as a writer, I'm the complete opposite. I'm constantly showing off and being a prick. I think we'll come to, like, I'll try to during the chat and during the whiskeys, I'm going to come to like you as a songwriter. But uh, 
let's maybe let's maybe <laughs> let the whiskey go down a little bit first. Um, so, Cat Power Manhattan from the album Sun from 2012, uh, her ninth album by that yeah. point as well. I saw her live once and uh, I thought she was astonishing. And then I saw her out in the car park, uh, you know, smoking a jazz cigarette and and I think drinking some heavy liquor. So I'm sure she would enjoy a quality. I'm sure she would malt whiskey and. Yes, that track, beatbox, piano, three chords, yeah. very minimalist. Yeah. I think it's a, I, this all sounds great on the playlist. I think this is great. Now, obviously, you're you're a, you're a rock star. You're a million, multi-million selling artist, but you're still a fan. I mean, agreeing to do this for a start, but also just whenever I meet you or chat to you, you have respect and love for other artists. How do you find your music, and do you like Spotify and? Yeah, I quite, I quite like Spotify. Streaming and I so prefer on. recommendations now. I, I, when when the internet first started, the thing I found most useful was a, a service called eMusic, where you would pay. I don't know. I paid quite a lot a month because I was fifty quid bloke. I was I was like the. You would go and spend fifty yeah, quid 50 on albums. And, 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 and I'm going to try CDs. the water in this. Uh, oh, I immediately put water in mine. Oh, did you? Yeah, right. my my dad would be turning in his grave if he thought I was drinking a malt I'll, whiskey I'll ask, you, I'll ask you about how you've discovered whiskey in a minute but uh, um, I, I, I always have it neat to begin with especially with this glorious world class stuff right um, well, like, do you know the, the, I, when I tasted the, the, the samples I drank most of them neat actually yeah um, but I thought I, I'm in a whiskey place I thought I should do the right thing put yeah. some water in. <laughs> oh no uh, um, sorry what were we talking about there? Uh, what were we talking about um but e-music and yes. 50 quid. So I, I signed up this e-music thing. So as 50 quid blow, I thought, well, I'll download 80 tracks a month. That's quite a lot. Yeah. I didn't realise how much that was because I thought, well, I'd probably buy that equivalent of that albums a month. So I was still buying CDs, but I was also desperately trying to fulfil my quota of 80 tracks in e-music, uh, which I didn't always do. So sometimes I had to download a bunch of comedy albums. You know, downloaded like George Carlin's entire oeuvre at one point. Um, no bad thing. No, 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 not a bad thing at all. But the great thing about e-music was somebody had curated the kind of alternative side of it, and that was just a big window of record sleeves. So you could identify, or you could pick what you're going to listen to by the album sleeve and the name of a band, like you would in a in record a, shop. Yeah. Uh, and that I found that really successful. So I discovered loads of things that weren't on the radio that I wouldn't otherwise have, have heard. Um, back in the early, I suppose that'd be the early zeros or something, would it? Is that the early days of internet music? I get kind of confused now. When yeah, so well, probably you know, twenty years ago, under yeah. eighteen years ago, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Um, so that was a really useful service, and then uh, eventually, I think that went bust eventually. Um, and also, the quality was really low. The bit rate was terrible um, for for downloads. So then I kind of migrated onto. Um, Spotify, which is not as good for browsing because it's not really curated and it's all that algorithm stuff where mm-hmm. what you've previously li- previously listened to, which is a nightmare for me because well, it's a nightmare for a lot of, a lot of people who are musicians because a lot of the time you use Spotify just as a reference tool, so you'll actually use it to refer to your own music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I get recommended stuff that a Delamitri listener would listen to, which is not what I would want to listen to. Um, I mean, I don't want to listen to Dylan I just have to to figure out what the chord changes are in that bridge. Oh, lear- relearn yeah, your songs. Exactly, yeah. Right, okay. Um, 
But then in the, in the interim, I got, after e-music, I got into um, listening to internet radio stations and I found quite a good alternative rock station in New York where mm-hmm. I discovered, that's how I discovered um, Sun Kill Moon and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that got a bit repetitive. So I'm... I'm uh, the Do last you still buy CDs or vinyl? I still buy the... I buy CDs at gigs and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I still buy the... Uh, I buy a bit of vinyl. But I'm not listening to as much new music as I used to and I'm not sure why that is. I don't know whether it's age... I don't know whether I've just been whether the algorithms have locked me into a bit of a bubble. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I don't get you. I don't get to, to listen to your show enough that where I would hear music that I would go out and buy. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I try with my BBC show. I try and um, and the remit slightly changed, so I am playing slightly more heritage music, older music, classic right. artists. Yeah. But um, I suppose what I'm renowned for is playing new music uh-huh. and you know there, there's never been more excellent new music around yeah. it's just not necessarily what's breaking through into mainstream circles and so on so you have to dig that a little bit deeper and also you know you don't ever I never want to be jaded so I have to so there have to be times when I have a palate cleanser I've, often if I go on holiday I'll only listen to the Beatles or the Beach Boys or more likely jazz yeah. um, jazz, and, is, jazz is good on holiday yeah or or you know Af- Afrobeat or you know sort of African music I'll only listen to things that complete, are completely different from the sort of music that I'm being yeah. sent yeah. constantly that makes but, sense uh, yeah bands on the road do that a lot like rock bands will listen to a lot of really non-rock stuff yeah on the road and vice versa you know I'm sure there's lots of you know kind of uh, I don't know I mean jazz bands that will put on some Hard metal. I like that. A palate cleanser. Yeah, yeah. Um, As we've got five whiskies to go through, I'm. I'm, It tends to happen. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because I'm asking the questions. But I've already finished dram number one. Don't don't feel any. I'm not going to feel the pressure to finish it. I I did like that. Yeah. Let's move on to dram number two. I, I, I think it's a, and this is a really un PC thing to say, but I think it's a slightly girly whiskey. And oh, not right. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but it's not it's not a manly whiskey. Okay. So I, it's very light, it's very yeah. easy to drink. I, I felt it had a little kick at the back of the throat, but um it's it's if you if you could drink that on a summer's day You could yeah. and and yeah. not worry too much about you it. Could, you, you could put an ice cube in it, actually. Yeah. I don't know that's a I'm sure that's a fair boating, you know, but um <laughs> But let's move on to, uh, you know, whiskey number two and yep. song number two. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting discovering new music. Recommendation will always be the greatest way, right, I think. And, and radio, you know, because radio is that kind of, it's like an open source. You, you don't know what's going to happen next. You're, you're not in control of it. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. The things I'm in control of, I, I end up, I just... I get very limited. I just go down little wormholes of predictability, you know. Yeah, I think everyone's a bit like that. Yeah. And it's funny. I've heard um, younger people, yeah. younger generations, yeah. sort of saying, "Oh, I don't listen to the radio because I'm the best DJ that I know." And I, I understand that, but I don't think it's a necessarily a great uh, concept because yeah. having the selector, the in in this case the radio DJ, suggesting a load of tunes you've never heard before, surely that's a that's got to be a good thing. I yeah. mean. If the person suggests 20 songs in a row that you absolutely hate, then yeah. he's maybe not your guy or she's not your, your girl. But if you're getting one tune in every three or four that you really like or that yeah. really, that's, that's a pretty good hit rate. I absolutely, think. yeah. 
So, dram number two is called okay. Monroe Magic. Yes. So let's uh, pour a bit of that in, into glass number two. I do love it that the Whiskey Society give us five different ornate glasses here as well. It's, because it's, very, it's all way too posh for me. <laughs> it's kind of posher than a wine tasting. I don't know well, why. I think whiskey... This, Maybe I mean, because whiskey is more high value or something, you know. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a modern drink now. I, I think yeah. I, was, I was talking to Stina from Honeyblood about this, and mm-hmm. she was sort of saying, um, you know, whiskey is a drink that she loves and she goes for specifically, but it was maybe seen as an old man drink 20, 30, 40, 50 years yeah. ago. It isn't anymore. Yeah. So Monroe Magic, um, it's a space side. Right. It's 11 years old. It's 58.7%. And it's in a second fill ex bourbon barrel. And here are some tasting notes. My eyesight's getting worse, I have to say. Um, well, it is quite small writing to be yeah, fair. Yeah. Uh, one panel member immediately had that picture in his head of climbing a Monroe, a mountain in Scotland over 914 metres, for those of you who don't know. And having reached the top, enjoyed the view as he chewed on a bar of white Kendall mint cake covered in rich, dark Belgian chocolate. Uh, back from the hike, we sat in a finished sauna using the fragrance of lavender in full bloom to unwind. The notes do go on, but there's a Kendall mint cake, lavender. It does have a sweet chocolatey something going on. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, as you say, maybe it's the suggestive notes, but I'm yeah. getting a little bit of mint off this as well. Right. And uh, we should say this is a, as a part of the tasting profile, juicy oak and vanilla. Yeah, I can, the vanilla is maybe what I can smell. Again, it's all also suggestion, isn't it? Yeah, it is suggestive, but it does. It, it, I'm, I'm perhaps oversmelt it now, if that makes any sense. But it does smell very different from the, the last yeah. one. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I think you know, for non whiskey drinkers, they think a whiskey's a whiskey, a whiskey. Certainly not. And as I'm immersing myself further in mm-hmm. these world class. You know, whiskies. I'm, I'm hopefully learning more and more. So, juicy oak and vanilla. Um, some of the tasting notes, for example, in the flavour profile would be oiled wood, toasted oak, coriander seed, pineapple sorbet, um, carpenter's workshop, which it's, I like. It's less floral and fruity than the last whisky. Yeah. It's drier, and it's got a got a sort of buttery mouth feel. Oh, it does, yeah. Yeah, so it's, thick, it's thicker. Maybe that's the alcohol, of course, because it's... It's a sort of slightly more... Does this make sense? Slightly more rounded yes, tasting. Yes, I thought it smelt more rounded. That was a, yeah. Yeah, I thought it smelt rounder, yeah. Mm. Um, Monroe Magic. And you've gone for I Dream a Highway? Yeah. By Gillian Welsh. Because I thought, well, Monroe Magic, that does... Came into those sort of late night drives in the Highlands that um, I'm often on when I'm writing because I go away on trips to write now because I don't really write at home so much because I've got an, a, a fellow human being living in the house. I don't really like writing around other people. So um, I generally go to the Highlands. And I've been doing it for about 10 years or something. Mm. And to take a break, the best thing you can do is just go and drive to the nearest hill and just walk about for a bit. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you do find yourself driving back at night with songs going around, the, the things you're writing going around in your head. Um, and this uh, this Gillian Welsh song is um, 
Is it Gillian? I, th- I think it's Gillian Welsh. Right, right. I, I, I may be I wrong. Was, as I was saying her name, I was saying Gillian Welsh. It's I think spelled Gillian, but I think it's Gillian. Gillian, I think you're right, actually. Um, Sorry for that, Gillian. But th- this is definitely a, a, a song about travelling along a long route. Again, it's one of these songs I've never figured out what on earth she's singing about, but I find it um, ineffably beautiful. Uh, and it's almost 15 minutes long. It's very song. long. And I think that's part of it. You know, like those drone rock things like Can or, or mm-hmm. stuff that where their strength is sort of in their repetition. Um, I think that's part of this song's strength. If it was four minutes long, it wouldn't quite work. Because it seems to morph very sort of slowly. If uh, You feel like the chorus is changing. I don't think the chorus does change, but it feels like it's changing. Maybe just the, the nuances with which she delivers the... The, the lyrics changes slightly, so it just feels like a, a journey, you know. I just find, yeah, I find it very, very moving, this song. I, I think people who um, like music and whiskey will completely see the, the combination working here. A lot of people I've spoken to, uh, whiskey aficionados, sort of go, well, when I drink whiskey, it's it's folk music, it's it's Americana, it's country, it's blues, that's it. I can't, I can't listen to <laughs> reggae and, 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 and drink whiskey, which I think is a shame because I, I think it's obviously, you know, you can do that. But this, this song, this artist, I would say, yeah. is synonymous with, I would imagine, I don't know if she even She's got a song whiskey. called Whiskey Girl. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, she's got a, very, a strange backstory going on because when I first came across her on her second album, I think, Hell Amongst the, the Yearlings, you know, her and her husband present themselves as these kind of dirt poor Appalachians, and of course they're nothing of the sort. You know, they're they're highly educated, you know, middle class white Americans. Um, and she, I think, she was a bit of a rocker when she was in college, mm-hmm. and then I think she had a kind of psychedelic period, and then she came out of that and kind of invented this sort of folk persona and started listening. Obviously, started listening to a lot of. Roots American mm-hmm. folk music, uh, country folk and blues folk. It sounds very. I mean, she sounds authentic to me. She sounds. She, I like think. She, I think she is authentic because she's not ostensibly she's a, a folk revivalist. But actually, when you listen to to the lyrics, she's describing the modern world. She's not describing the labour strikes of the nineteen twenties. She's distra- describing a consumerist society that's gone to shit in a shopping trolley mm-hmm. so I, I think she's really contemporary but she's she wears these um, very uh, attractive retro clo- clothes, I mean that figuratively I'm sorry, I mean that uh, metaphorically not figuratively, mm-hmm. um, not literally um, and her, her, her husband's a brilliant a brilliant accompanist um, she just, yeah and they of, must be deep rooted in that whole Nashville scene as well I would imagine yeah but not not, not the commercial side of it the kind mm. of cool side of it um, have you you must have spent time in Nashville have you written over there or? no I, I've, I've I kind of hate Nashville I hate the oh wow okay <laughs> I, I hate the I, it's like Hollywood to me but Hollywood's the film industry so it's, the film industry's still got a bit of glamour if you're a musician whereas Nashville is just a, a, the industry music town and um, that kind of whole music business thing doesn't really appeal to me mm-hmm. Uh, so I've never had a great time in Nashville. I mean, I played to some great audiences and, and things, but I've never really responded. I've only it. been once, and I enjoyed it. But um, they had a big 
uh, American football meet on in the oh centre of the town. So it was at, it, jokes the, and jills. Yeah, yeah, it was it was the population almost doubled for the, the weekend that we were there. But we did go into some honky tonks and listen to some incredible musicians. Right. I mean, just. Um, we saw a band called the Possum Touchers, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they they played old school um, bluegrass uh, Appalachian type stuff. And the harmonies, the banjo playing, it was just yeah, off the scale, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and some good old electrified country. Yeah. And, and as a tourist, I loved it. Yeah. But I also went down whatever it's called, Rock and Roll Road or yeah. uh, Rock and Roll Row, I think it is, right. or whatever, where it is all of the. Music publishing row, is it? Music, music row, yeah, yeah. So it's publishing houses and recording studios, yeah. and as as impressive as it was, I I I felt a bit like you. I thought, yeah. mm, I'm not sure this the, is that healthy. The fondest thing story I can think about Nashville was we found ourselves in a a very non country and western bar, like a, almost like a Spanish bar or something. One night, and there at the bar were Guy Clark and Times Van Zandt, absolutely pissed. Um, and of course, me and Ian, who are big, Ian's a huge Guy Clark fan. I'm, I'm more of a Times Van Zandt fan. Um, we were just too awestruck to go and say hello to the band. Andy, our, our keyboard player, had no absolutely no fear at all. So he he went over and got talking to them. And then about half an hour later, we turned around and the, all all three of them were singing "Danny Boy" with our arms around each other. And I think that was a whiskey a whiskey evening. Um, so yeah, that was that. Times Van Sant fans will absolutely love that because yeah. uh, I would imagine he's the sort of guy that gets pissed and sings Danny Boy. So. You would, wouldn't you? And, yeah. there, and there he was, there and, he that, was. and that's what he did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've got another funny story about Times Van Sant from um, uh, Grant McLennan from the Go Betweens. Yeah, and he was say, he's, he was a massive, massive Times Van Sant fan, and he got a kind of. Uh, he, he managed to invite him to one of a, a solo show he was doing in LA. So Times Van Zandt came along, and he'd been sober for like a year or something at this point. Times Van Zandt, and he came backstage and he was very charming, and uh, Grant was uh, just overawed to be talking to this legend and his hero. So then Grant had a had a beer, and then he noticed that, and because he knew that Times Van Zandt wasn't drinking, and then he noticed that Times Van Zandt had helped him self to a beer and he's like this guy hasn't had a drink for at least a year and then he started tripping because he you know sober alcoholic suddenly having a drink has quite a serious effect and he started visualising this angel on Grant's shoulder and Grant said it was so freaky he just had to he just had to run away he had to get out what, of what if I've killed him I said Grant it wasn't your fault you took one of your beers I mean it was, it was of his own volition you know and Grant said it was just really odd, you know, meeting his hero, really charming, and then suddenly he just went into this mad alcoholic reverie. He was going, man, I can see that angel in your shoulder, man. Oh, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I mean, how do you react in a situation like that? I mean... Um, I would run away. I would do what Grant did. Or, tr- tr- you know, try and change the subject. But <laughs> oh, oh, can you? Yeah, funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. Funny. What did you think yeah. of the, uh, uh, you know, the second song in the set tonight? You know, um, yeah, um, int- uh, fascinating, brilliant. Yeah, Nashville, strange place, I think. Yeah. Um, but I think this song is a great choice. And um, talking of whiskey, that's why we're here, obviously. How did you discover it or first get into it? Um, you, my you dad was my fr- dad was a big blended drinker. He was right. quite snooty until later in life when he, he kind of got into malts a bit. 
Um, he he always said that a, a really great, a really good blended is better than a brilliant malt whiskey. Oh wow! Um, which I, I, I never kind of understood. And he read a lot about whiskey in the seventies. There were books about whiskey lying everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And he because he, he was the chorus master of the SNOC, mm-hmm. um, uh, and all big choirs are amateur basically because you can't afford to pay all these singers so the orchestras are paid and the choirs are amateur so they always have to get sponsorship so he was sponsored by a whiskey a whiskey company for years so there was lots of <laughs> lots of free whiskey but I never really got, I, I didn't really like the smell I quite like the smell of it on his breath so I quite like sitting beside and watching the telly and when he smelled the whiskey that was quite mm-hmm. nice I thought that was a nice thing um, but I didn't actually like the smell in the glass mm-hmm. whereas I did like the smell of beer beer was a good thing you know but then Ian from Dilly Machine Harvey, he got really into whiskey, malt whiskey and bourbons. So he would seek out whiskey bars in the States. I remember being in one in Seattle that had every malt whiskey you could possibly think of that mm-hmm. would be imported and uh, and loads of bourbons. And he, he was right into comparing good bourbons to good, good malts. So he kind of started teaching me. And I've had a couple of lessons from Aidan O'Rourke from Lau. Mm-hmm. Gave me a sort of brief lesson at a festival about how you should approach drinking whiskey, um, but I'm I'm a bit of a novice, I have to say. Um, yeah, I, I I didn't get into drinking whiskey at all until I was well into I would say late twenties, maybe even thirties. Right. Um, it just wasn't a you know it was fire water and it was yeah. possibly an old man's drink, but mm-hmm. also just too strong and mm-hmm. drink it and mm-hmm. go berserk or like fall over yes, uh, I, I and not f- really appreciate it yeah I had a few, few episodes of drinking whiskey when I was young and going bonkers um, yeah. for some reason just getting terribly excited yeah. maybe, maybe it was because it makes you feel more Scottish and you just become more Scottish when you drink too much of it um, but I've also had the kind of opposite experience where I've, where I've nursed a bottle of whiskey over a very long period and that has quite a sort of sobering effect rather than a, an exuberant effect. Well, it's quite strange. If anyone's watched or listened to these podcasts since the very first episode, um, you'll probably often hear me saying, oh, I've finished all five of these drams. Now, five drams in roughly an hour is a lot of alcohol to drink, yeah. and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Yeah. But as I walk out of the room after we stop recording, I, I obviously feel like I've drunk whiskey, but yeah. I don't feel like I've, you know, I've drunk... You eight, know, eight pints of Guinness. Oh, or five like beers. Yeah. If I drank five beers or five glasses of wine, I, uh, it, it it has a, a different kind of effect on me. And I think just growing up and appreciating the flavour and the, the you know paying respect to the drink. Yeah, I think is is something that that I didn't do when I was younger. Well, that's the sort of civilized side of drinking alcohol is the paying attention to the textures and flavours. Mm. I mean that kind of stuff growing up in a middle class background with lots of brandy and whiskey and wine that stuff used to sort of drive me mad a bit um, because I felt like it was a there was a bit of hypocrisy going on amongst the middle classes well you know the working classes were you know going to the bookies and then into the pub and swilling you know filthy pints of lager uh, mm-hmm. the, the rich were kidding themselves on that they weren't getting pissed but yeah. actually there, there is a lot to be said for the, the civilized side of drinking, which is really enjoying what you're drinking. I've never understood people that that don't like the taste of, of what they drink. That yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. Hold my nose, but yeah, drink yeah. it just to get I, drunk. I mean, I, I, I really Very like. Very strange. I like beer, but if I find myself at a party where there's only, 
mass-produced lager available, and this is the absolute snob in me. I will, no matter how desperate I am for a drink, I will not drink that beer. Um, you know, if it's Coors Light, it's not happening. It's, well, I, go, I, I would home. love to say that I'm the same, but I probably would if it was, you know, two in the morning, whatever. And I could be run. lying, of course, Vic. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, this, uh, you know, uh, to be honest, Gillian Welch is not an artist I know a huge amount about. So this, uh, and I hadn't heard this song, and it it's really resonates with me as well. Um, it's it's being added to the Molson Music playlist, obviously, but it will be something that I go back to individually. I'm, I'm the same as you, and I like a, a, a long piece of music yeah, that has yeah. that sort of sense of repetition, if, yeah. it, if it works. Sometimes yeah, yeah. it's just boring. Some, a lot of house music bores me, but sometimes... When good, I mean, it good right, house music, when it, it's develops, fantastic, when it yeah. develops in the right places, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm sorry to say, Justin, I'm, I'm nearing the end of this drama. It's nice, this, though, isn't it? It's, it's very nice, and it's quite different. As you say, it's more buttery, I think the last more one rounded. Was, the last one was floral, and this is sort of buttery. Yeah, and I think, although the, the initial um, notes, you know, that I was saying flavour notes were kind of Kendall mint cake and lavender, I'm actually getting more vanilla and mm-hmm. butter and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing. I, I'm not sure if I would drink the first one. No, I would drink this. Mm-hmm. Again, as you say, because it's round or it's more, it's a, just a wee bit more satisfying, I think. Mm-hmm. Very, very delicious. Let's move on. Dram number three. Okay. Um, which is, has another excellent name, Fruity Wax. Ah. <laughs> Fruity <laughs> Wax. What a terrible name for a malt whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? But uh, I'll read out some of the flavour notes in just a second. Yes, let, me, let me pour that one in. I didn't realise when they sent me these tasters that these were the tasting notes. I should have boned up on all these and then pretended I knew what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> well, let's let's go for it. Um, well, this is a Speyside. It's 17 years old. Um, it is 54.5% and it's a first fill ex-bourbon barrel. Um, it is part of the, again, the juicy oak and vanilla tasting profile. And here are some of the notes on the card. A beautifully complex and layered aroma at first, full of canvas, mineral oil, baking soda, uh, leavened breads, turmeric and orange vitamin tablets fizzing in mineral water. Gets earthier with potting sheds, moss and petrichor. Then breakfast cereals topped with icing sugar and sweet fruit cordials. Luscious and wonderfully complex. They do go on, but there's a little... I mean, many comparisons there, kind of covering a few different bases, but... um, Add a bit of Nosing. water again. Again, this is a different nose. From it is, isn't it? Yeah. Even from the the, the same pro, uh, flavor profile as the last one, but it's not nearly as buttery. It's no. Hmm. And I see what they mean about the orange vitamin tablets. Yeah, it's funny. I'm just, I'm, just... Tr- I'm, tr- I'm searching for uh, turmeric. I can't. I couldn't get the turmeric thing at all. And maybe when I taste it. Yes, I think it's it's slightly more citrusy on the nose. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Let Again, I just fact, let me have a sip of water just to I've done cleanse this, the palate. Done this at wine tastings before. As soon as somebody says petrol, I go, "Oh yeah, I can smell that." Yeah, <laughs> but I wouldn't actually volunteer. I don't. I have to say, I don't have the world's most sophisticated sense of smell either. I am getting. Um, well, more of the, the sort of icing sugar and um, that's sharp. And, and, oh, do you think so? I think it's um, 
I'm I'm sort of getting I can see when it's leaven breads. I was thinking, um, you know, obviously. I mean, it's doughy. It's got a doughiness to it, I think. <laughs> uh, but um, but then with that kind of as you, as was mentioned, the the orange vitamin mm-hmm. tablets, the fizzy. So it's got a sort of citrusiness, and then a. Is a, it more bitter than the last one? I think it is. Yeah, yeah. it's more bitter. So it's more uh, astringent or something. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think that tastes more like a blended, but I but I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm just, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to. Oh, I think only the real whiskey experts know. We're all. Yeah. I'm certainly an amateur when it comes to this, but um, I don't think I like this mu- as much as the last one. But that, I'm, that's not a particularly sophisticated statement. I just prefer the last one. This has, for me, has more. Um, You've got your nose, your, your first, the sip, at the, the taste at the front of the mouth and sort of middle and back of the mouth. Yeah. The, the front and, and middle of the mouth, I'm getting more of a kick with this one. Right. As you say, maybe yeah. the bitterness in it. Yeah. Last, the last one was very drinkable, it has to be said, and more rounded and buttery. Yeah. This is yeah. a bit more bitter. Yeah. Um, it's, a yeah. Bit more, it's a bit more adult. Yes, I think you're right. Um, less alcopop. <laughs> yeah. Not that any of them are. Fruity wax. Fun, funny name. I mean, I suppose there is that that citrusy fruitiness to it. Um, you have paired and this. And it's waxy. It's got it's got a it's got a thick mouthfeel. I'm feeling it after post sip. I'm feeling it sort of coating my mouth a yeah. little bit more mm-hmm. than the other two that we've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've paired this w- one with the hardest working man in show business, the godfather of soul. The new oh. prime minister of the super heavy, heavy funk. <laughs> uh, can we think of any other names? Well, or? look, if royalty have, you know, millions and millions of titles. So can James Brown. Why shouldn't the godfather of soul? Yeah. Um, I just, uh, fruity wax, those two things, uh, especially wax, you know, um, James Brown's records are on wax. Yeah. You know, in the way that, you know, the Blue Niles aren't. Right. So, um that, yes, the name get sort of led me towards. Can led you imagine him shouting, "Fruity wax"? <laughs> you know, maybe no, not. I don't think I can. No. <laughs> no, <maybe not. laughs> um, yeah, um, you've gone for my thang. Yeah, uh, um, which is you know, if you, it's a great track by the way, um, but n- maybe not one that people would immediately go to with uh, James Brown. Do but, you do you have a lot of funk and all oh, my you know, my favorite. James Brown album is an album called uh, I think it's called Solid Gold is it Solid Gold or James Brown it might be called Gold a, d- a double album with you know the the each band on the vinyl is you know about three millimetres because right. they've packed so many tracks onto it um, and I kind of that was the first funk music I, I, I listened to really when I was oh, about 17, 18 yeah 17 because uh, there was really no black music in our house at all when we were growing up. And it was only when I moved into a flat with a friend of mine who had a really big R&B collection that I started listening to black music and thought, what have I been missing all these years? Um, uh, so that was a... That track's on the album. Um, over the years, I've, I've sort of bought all the, the original studio albums, mm-hmm. which in the 70s are all very conceptual. Uh, they've got some amazing ballads on them. Uh, but they're... They're a bit overly over conceptual. This this comes from a, a, an album called Hell, which is a concept album, and all the songs are separated by the, the sort of ponderous um, 
uh, ominous sound of a gong, gong being hit, which is just like the worst idea in concert rock it's, ever. It's, it's an odd, <laughs> it's an odd album, and there's a sort of Latin version of "Please, please, please." Is there? All right, yeah. okay, I, I, I don't even remember that. I mean, which is bizarre, and I, I would like to say works, but I'm not sure it does. <laughs> apart from everything that James Brown does, works in some way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, th- those sort of songs that were just. Uh, put together to get people moving mm-hmm. are my kind of favourite James Brown things. I mean, you know, I love you know this is a man's 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 world uh, and some of the later, slightly more political stuff. Um, but yeah, just the just the kind of things that are designed to get people cutting a rug or where it's at from you, James Brown. So that kind of like mid sixties to mid seventies stuff, I really love. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, some of the greatest music ever committed to wax yeah um it's it, astonishing um and i i looked into this because um although i know this song i didn't know the album hell yeah until you sort of suggested it i looked into it and i found out it was his according to the internet his 38th studio album well he started because he started in what the late 50s mm. mid to late 50s mm-hmm. the famous late was he not in a band before the famous late? um so he kind of predates rock and roll in a way, you mm. know. He comes out of that kind of almost like band leader, you know, um, big band thing almost, mm-hmm. doesn't he? Such a strange combination of things, James Brown, and then just kind of completely reinvented urban music. Oh, I mean, it's still... Talk about music that could maybe go on for 10, 12, 14 minutes yeah. and never get boring. Yeah, yeah. Um, any, any of... James Brown's key bands, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, they they can do that. They hit a mm-hmm. groove, and that's yeah. it. Yeah, I remember listening to the, the. I think there's a few live at the Apollo albums, but um, they're astonishing. To, they're really astonishing. And, you know, probably just recorded on one mic, and that that's what they did. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, quite incredible. Um, I mean, did you, he, another interesting character in that he didn't touch like a drug until he was like 50 or something or in is his that 40s. true yeah right he oh. was a really clean living hard working virtuous guy and then he just fell off the the rails and mm-hmm. went a bit mad for mm-hmm. quite a while uh and it's, it's kind of funny I've, I've seen that happen in other other people's lives people that have lived lives like monks for um for whatever reason, you know. Gil Scott Heron was a bit like that, I yeah, think. You know, yeah, he was, you know, wasn't the, he? Uh-huh. The, the bottle and so on, the yeah. songs that were anti-drinking That's songs. Right. And then ended up ended up actually in a bad state and, and, and ended up taking a lot of drugs. I heard a, a story about him because he, you know, his father yeah, famously played for played Celtic. For Celtic. Um, but he w- he used to come and play gigs in Scotland all yeah. the time, Gil Scott Heron. Yeah. And um, he wore a baseball hat through customs once the time, and the pl- the customs officer stopped him. Can you take off the hat, sir? He took it off, and there was a a sort of wrap of cocaine, I assume, right. stuck to his forehead, uh, oh. just with a bit of sellotape, the baseball hat over the top. Um, Gil, what um, are you doing? I know, uh, <laughs> damn shame, you know. Um, and. J- I met James Brown. I'm going to have to drop that yeah, clanger in here. That's, that's a good name drop. Um, Live 8 happened oh, um, at yeah. Murrayfield yeah. Stadium in Edinburgh. And I interviewed Annie Lennox, mm-hmm. Majeur, all sorts of different people. And they had an all-star lineup. Um, and um, we finished a something like six-hour broadcast for the BBC, um, which had been simultaneously... Exhilarating, but also was tiring. that the gig where, where Ricky Gervais had to just ad lib for like two minutes at one point because something was late? 
I I can't remember that. That might have been after you'd finished. There was a really mad... Anyway, carry on. Carry on, carry on with your James Brown quite, quite, Quite possibly. Um, well, it was as simple as this. We'd walked out of the truck. We were all kind of exhausted and sort of having a breath of fresh air. And we looked over towards the stadium because we were a few, you know, a few hundred metres away. And there was a van and people loading up equipment. And outside the van was James Brown. And someone went, is that James Brown? <laughs> and literally everyone, there was a, maybe a crew of about 10 of us, everyone dropped everything they were doing yeah. and just sprinted over. Oh, it was James Brown and his wife. He wasn't actually humping gear into the van, but he was stood there sort of... So he's not the hard work, hardest working man. <laughs> he's a lazy, <laughs> good for nothing. Um, but we, I have a photo. Um, we, we spoke to him and um, Stuart Cruikshank, who you, you may remember, yeah. a, you know, a phenomenal guy and mm-hmm. producer at the BBC, yeah. um, said to him, James, James, yeah, you are the new prime minister of the super heavy, heavy funk. And he, I promise you, he went, yeah, and did a spin on, uh, you know, for us. And it was, you know, we just stood in sort of awe and yeah. tried to ask him some questions. Yeah. And he was, he was a gentleman and yeah. did a photo with us. And it was yeah. great. So it was a real thrill. It's not yeah. like I met him in a bar and he sang Danny Boy, but... Well, it, not, it was, I, I didn't either. I was too scared to meet uh, Terence Van Sant. It, it, was, it was a thrill, though. That to, is to, a thrill. To, yeah. be, to be in the presence of somebody that, yeah. that important. Phenomenally you know. important, I yeah. think. Um, uh-huh. And let's, let's imagine that he had the occasional whiskey every now and again. But Fruity Wax and My Thang, you think that's a... I don't think maybe it's just a bit too astringent for, for James Brown. I might, have got this, I might have got this wrong. Maybe it's a bit too serious. I mean, not that James Brown wasn't serious, but a lot of his music is really just music to party to. It's, yeah. not, it's not to make you think or bring you down or anything. And that, I don't think this whiskey is a party whiskey. Mm. It, it, like it has a bitterness. It has um, a, a sort of woodiness, which yeah. I'm discovering now yeah. halfway through it. Um, mm-hmm. I, think, I don't think I quite got that on the on. So on the said first t- you said in the tasting notes that it's... So it, I presume that means that's the first time that that bourbon cask has been filled with whiskey. Yes. So I wonder if they mellow the bourbon casks as they go. As, you know, I mean, if it's I'm, a second I'm literally fill. making this up as I go along. Do you know what? <laughs> you might be right, and I'm sure people can email or get in contact with us and tell us the exact uh, rules of it. But um, mm. I think that one tastes the most like whiskey. Yes. Whereas the other two tasted like modern, interesting variations on, on mm-hmm. whiskey to, to me. Hmm. So that's interesting. That, I think that's why I prefer the second one because the second one was sweeter, more uh, rounded, and, and, and yeah, just more less, less like sort of standard whiskey, and that just tastes very whiskeyish to me. Mm. Let's talk a bit about Delamitri and oh, and you as a songwriter and so on, because um, um, I just I wonder it's it's you and Ian have been the sort of mainstays of it for many years now. Um, Although you, you you stopped the bands or sort of went on hiatus, what two thousand two, yeah, um, and then sort of started doing things again. Twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, we did our first show, so right? So, um, why 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 get the the band back together, as it were? Initially, money. Uh, we were offered an awful lot of money, and which we said no to because we didn't want to do. We didn't think we'd fill any venues and um, we didn't like the idea of being a sort of greatest hits machine sort of thing. But then we thought, well, maybe we, we might actually enjoy being a sort of greatest hits jukebox type 
act. You know, we, we suddenly became a sort of heritage act quite quickly. From partly because we stopped at, at the end of the nineties. Effectively, we just stopped. So we didn't go out and just trawl around the venues every year or so and put albums out on smaller labels and which again there would be nothing wrong with doing that and um, you're um, always very humble and self-effacing when I meet you and you've got a great sense of humour and so on but um, you you maybe forget that, oh, I'm sure you don't but I, I you may not realise it but Delamitri are you've sold millions of albums you're a, you're, you yeah, are but, a hit making machine yeah we've know. sold millions of albums over uh, on the on the planet over a long, long period, you know, uh, we were never, we never really sort of. That's the best way, though. No, isn't I it? mean it is. Yeah, uh, d- d- all that. We, uh, at the time when we were very busy, we did not think we were successful, even though we had radio hits and airplay hits and a few sort of minor chart hits, um, and we were selling a few records and filling a few decent-sized halls in Europe and the states. That to us was not success. Success was what those guys in the private jets were going through. And we didn't really want that. We wanted something just below that. But we didn't think we, we had that. And then all, when we stopped in, in, the, in 2002, which is kind of when the recording music industry was collapsing, mm-hmm. uh, because the internet was, music was yeah. free at that point. Recorded music was free and becoming free at that point. Um, so we missed out on all that pain, which was quite good. So by the, the end of that decade, so I guess about 2012, we looked back at the 90s and thought, God, we had an amazing time and we were really lucky. Look, I played concerts at school. Um, I left school in 1990. We, I, I remember us covering Nothing Ever Happened. I mean, it was like, you know, when you, when you get to the point when school bands are covering your songs, you know, it's, it's, that's a... That's, you know, that's a different level. That's not a cult underground. No, know. I mean we had this weird mainstream pop success, even though we weren't really a mainstream pop band, mm. uh, and we didn't chase the chart positions. We just we wanted to be on the radio. I mean, our whole thing has always been because we came from alternative indie yeah. pop. You know, we were trying to do something different, you know, alongside contemporaries like Prefab Sprout or uh, um, I don't know. Probably a, a, a good case in point. We regarded ourselves as arty, mm-hmm. uh, but we liked the idea of being on the radio. And so, if you could be on nighttime radio, why not on? Why not be on daytime radio? And then that weirdly morphed into us becoming this sort of strange mid-Atlantic mainstream rock thing, which we just thought was hilarious. You know? But the thing is, the songs are effortless. It's like um, they, you, you know, they don't sound particularly Scottish. They don't. They don't sound particularly American, mm-hmm. but they, they, they're obviously massively influenced by American music. But they do, you've got a, how does the songwriting work? I take it it's mainly your songs, or is it completely your songs? No, it's, it's about 70% of the songs are written by me, and then, or it depends on the album actually, sometimes it's more 50-50, sometimes it's more 70-30. Um, but we've sort of got two modes of writing, so I'll write songs on my own, take them to the band to arrange them. Um, occasionally I arrange them myself but I'm not a very good arranger uh, or Ian will write a pretty complete song musically which I'll add lyrics to or he'll write a riff which I'll just sort of kind of build on he's really easy easy to write with he always gives you things where you know what the chorus is and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and he always does something slightly odd he doesn't just give you blues in D you know, he'll give you something just a strange time signature or 
something unusual that switches on that, that's quite inspiring really but, so it's, that's kind of the reason why I've never really written with anybody else because I just love writing with uh, Ian you know and we seem to know what we're doing um, well, so yeah well, I, well, we, we just we regard ourselves as quite an odd thing because even though what we do is incredibly conservative we don't come from a conservative background musically we come from quite left I mean relatively left have, music, you, have you, know. you ever like I remember speaking to Jim Kerr interviewing uh, mm-hmm. Jim Kerr from uh, Simple Minds once and I said, you know, once the band started having this mega global success yeah. and selling millions of albums and being adored by fans and so on, did you still want the art school indie press um, to, to sort of go, we love them, when they actually started going, no, they're not our band anymore, we don't like them anymore? And he went, yes, I wanted critical acclaim and massive global success as well. But he says, if I had to choose between the two, I'm quite happy with the million selling albums. Did, did you feel a bit like that? Did you, were you kind of like, we're now selling records, we're now getting on the radio, we're now playing to big audiences, but I still want that art school I mean, you, glory. You, I mean, you always want a, a critic that you trust to say positive things about you. I mean, that's, that's a really good feeling. And you'd be lying if you said that you didn't. But, I mean, we get ditched by the, the, the British weekly music press very early on for reasons that are too boring to go into um, and partly we were kind of annoying postcard copies so I can kind of see why we got dumped on initially we were we, we got coverage and good reviews and then they, they just shat all over us so we, we got really cynical about uh, the specifically the British music papers uh, and so I think a part of our subconscious motivation in making more accessible music was just to say fuck you we're, we're going to go to the charts yeah we didn't do I, I don't remember doing that consciously but I think subconsciously there was a sort of some d- vengeful drive to be successful in the in, or to be exposed in the mainstream rather than just being in some ghetto because if you're, if you're in a ghetto and you're not cool you're screwed mm-hmm. um and because the songs we started writing after we went to America in 1986 were just sounded more mainstream, mm-hmm. if they sound more mainstream, that's where they belong. You know, sometimes I, I feel really sorry for like indie pop bands that make very, very attractive, orally pretty music, and they're not in the charts. They're in, they're just these sort of music critics' darlings. Mm-hmm. And I think, God, that must be pretty rubbish because what you're doing is really, you know, gran- grannies like it, but they're not hearing it because you're in this. You know, backwater of. I know. personally think that those with critical acclaim and all the kudos in the world, secretly, maybe not even secretly, but in order to look cool, they have to be secret about it. Desperately want mega sales. Yeah, I mean, Marky Smith always wanted to be number one. I mean, everybody wants to be number one. Yeah, I mean, it'd be a complete, you know, Cabri Volter. I'm sure Cabri Volter would want to be number yeah. one. Um, but I, I suppose. What the mainstream is about is: Are you willing to make those awful compromises? Are you are you willing to go on a kids' TV show or Pebble Mill at one? And we were because we weren't we were no longer in that cool scene. We'd been we'd been exiled from it. You know, mm-hmm. we'd been told to fuck off in no short order. Yeah. So we did all that stuff. But if you were Nick Cave at that time, you couldn't do a kids' TV show. I mean, not unless you were really drunk or something. <laughs> <you know>? uh, <laughs> So I mean, we could make those compromises without hating ourselves because we just thought, well, sod it, we're, let, we're, let's just pretend we're Rod Stewart in the faces, you know. Why do we have to pretend we're 
REM or the fall or, mm-hmm. you know, or anything else. You know. And and you were completely comfortable with that as well. We were, I mean, but that, again, that's because we were we were. And did you enjoy that? I mean, you said we that, did. It was yeah. great. It was great vindication. We we loved it, we, and and we loved suddenly playing to sort of like Joe Public because before that you're playing to sort of university students, people that are fans of that genre of music, you know. Um, you know, people that would come to see our gigs would be really into the Smiths and James and not much else. Mm-hmm. And bands like Gene, you know, it was all very specific, kind right. of very earnest, angst-ridden, um, quite sort of lyrically heavy sort of music. Uh, so to uh, get, get out of that and just see normal people in the crowd singing along was a, a complete liberation. And I think... Not that I've ever played in front of adoring fans in the same way that you have. In oh, any I'm way sure shape. you have. Like. No, no, not in, in any way, <laughs> shape or form. But if you meet people who are genuinely connected to your music because they love it, not because they read about how cool it is in the music press or whatever, yeah. it's a genuine fan. That's a different kind of music listener to uh, Keeping Up With The Joneses' scene Yeah, but the thing about the scene is they know about music, so it's, it's a great compliment when they come to you because they've got great record collections and they say we love your music you know mm-hmm. whereas it's less of a compliment if somebody says oh I like your I like that last single of yours when you know they've got a terrible record collection but what is really touching is when people who have got terrible record collections have really got one of your songs they, they know exactly what you're trying to do and say and they kind of repeat it back to you and that's fabulous that's, yeah. that, that's better than the cool the cool, that's, the cool chick with the butthole surfers albums yeah. saying I really dig your music you know? yeah no I mean that's kind of I suppose what I was aiming at you saying you've said it but uh, it was that having people sing back your words to you at the front of the, the you know the crash barrier and you know that, that's got to be a greater feeling yeah it's, 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 it's really vindicating that that's yeah, yeah. I, 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 everybody would everybody would say that and maybe that's why so many Artists, for want of a better word, in all fields, really crave that sort of success. And you know, it's you know, like filmmakers that make really interesting low-budget films, and then they suddenly go and make some like Marvel film or something. Yeah. You think, why are you doing? It? You think, well, maybe they want some love, you know? Yeah. <laughs> maybe well, they and, want and also, or some recognition and you know? some, you know, they and want some to pay money, the, the, yeah. pay the rent. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, um, no, true. Good I don't want to. I don't want to hurry you here, and I Sorry. do want to talk about the the, the current Delamitri album. See, you made me nervous talking about Delamitri. I nearly finished that one. Well, let's go for it. I've just <laughs> finished yet another whiskey. <laughs> whiskey number four. Uh-huh. And uh, it is turning into the longest podcast of all time. I say that, I've said this in previous episodes of Maltz and Music, but. Um, the chat is scintillating. I hope people agree, but it's great chatting <laughs> to you. So we're moving on to digestible estival festival. Yeah, how do you pronounce that? A e estival. Estival. I'm not sure actually. Yeah. Um, but let's pour this one in. This looks pale, doesn't it? It definitely does. It's a very it's like a talascary uh, pale thing. Yeah, lemony. Yeah. It does. Um, okay. So and let's do some of the tasting notes and so on. The information. This is a Speyside. Okay. It's 11 years old, it's 56.6% and it is from a second fill ex-bourbon barrel. It is part of the light and delicate flavour profile and a few words on it from the tasting cards. Uh, This is a digestible estival festival, bursting with aromas and flavours of summer. 
The nose, fresh as linen, flapping on the line, has lemon groves, strawberries dipped in syrup, apples and gorse, with clean mineralic notes. Mineralic notes. Um, I'm looking up Estival in my dictionary. Does it have a... Yes, it does. So it's a word that we... Do you know this word? I no, don't I don't know, know this word, no. Um, it's an adjective belonging to or appearing in summer. Ah. ah so summary. Summary. Well, what it, we, we said it was light in colour. It's uh, lemony in colour and, and lemon grows. And it is very summery smelling, actually. Oh, this... this hay, hay or something. Or, yeah. That's just the colour keying off. Yeah, but, my, but no, it's fair enough. Consciousness. Um, it's... If anything, it's... Uh, it's lemony. It's definitely lemony. Yeah. Did it say that? It did say <laughs> that, yeah. Yes. Lemons, um, strawberries, yeah. dipped in syrup, apples and gorse. Yeah. And uh, definitely gorse a little bit yeah. as well. Because gorse is quite sweet smelling, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Mm. So, um, so this is a bit more like the first one. Or the first I, th- one I think so. I was going to say I that. I think the first one is more complicated. This, this has a different flavour profile, but on the nose it's similar to the first one. Um... Let's go in for a sip. It's amazing how light malt whiskey can be. I, I describe that as jangly. Oh, wow. I should have chosen the jack, some jangly well, jangle you, pop you've for gone, this. It may be inspired by the, the, the festival of the title. Yeah. You've uh, chosen pulp sorted for ease and whiz, yeah. um, which is a kind of festival anthem in its way. Yeah. Um, Tell, tell me why you've... I mean, it's obviously inspired well, by the Well, you know, it, it does work, actually, because it is a very summery um, whiskey. It's very light, very light whiskey. Super drinkable, this it's one. It's very I mean. drinkable. The first one was drinkable as well, actually. It has a tartness in the mouth now that I've had a sip. It's very light on the nose, but... Uh, it's actually very nice. Yeah. I like the dryness of it. Mm-hmm. It's like very, very dry champagne. Yeah, I see what you mean by that. Yeah, I th- I think actually so that, no- that that comment um, combined with some of the tasting notes, whether it be lemon, strawberries, gorse, apples, mm-hmm. dry champagne. Yep. Um, so it's got a sort of flowery, fruity nose, but but to drink it's got that nice, really nice dryness. It is. It is more complex than it lets on straight away. Right. I think. Um. Hmm. Pulp. Yes. Um, now, I'm I'm thinking, you know, different class. That was the, the album from mm-hmm. which uh, this particular track was taken. 1995. You know, your one of your biggest albums, Twisted, came out in '95. Mm-hmm. Um, did Did you sort of look at what was happening with Britpop and and feel completely disconnected from that? And how how what was your kind of well, feeling we were, of watching we were, the, uh, the rise of Jarvis Cocker? And, I love Britpop. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd followed the, the sort of bands that had made records pre-Britpop. I kind of knew, you know, I knew a bit about the first Blur record. And I knew a bit about sort of early Pulp. I'd heard a few Peel sessions. And I knew they were kind of a slightly quirky indie band, you know. Um, but we we kind of loved it, you know, because by, by that time we'd become a hairy, sweaty, leather trouser-wearing, heavy-drinking to all intents and purposes American rock band because we got kind of stuck in America for the most of the mid 90s between 94 98 we were there an awful lot um, so it was quite nice to come home and there was actually a proper rock scene going on you know uh, with song written driven and it was 
popular in the mainstream. I remember going out to um, the art school disco one night, and uh, on the way up, there were young students from the art school all singing on the street, singing "Girls and Boys" by Blur, like it was their anthem, like their generation had discovered music that they could really identify with. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was brilliant. That was really exciting. I thought Oasis was tremendously exciting when I first saw them. I saw them at Tea in the Park before the first album came out. They were brilliant. Um, I watched a lot of bands at Tea in the Park over that period because I used to drive there and just watch everything that I could. Um, and I saw Pulp Headline Tea in the Park. I'm not sure what year that would have been, but that might have been 95. Yeah, it probably was, yeah. Um, and that was one of those, yeah. you know, galvanising communal almost religious experiences that people talk about at festivals when they did common people uh, at, the, at that show um, and I thought god this is what festivals are you know because all the other festivals I've seen have just been absolutely terrible you know? you're, you're an observant um, songwriter you know your songs are full of you know human observation uh, you, you, you know you I think you know obviously you will write from your own perspective and they're you know Things are, you know, you're covering your own emotions and your own human experiences. But you also um, write from a, a sort of outsider's point of view, sometimes telling a story or yeah. observing something that's going on. And Jarvis Cocker, an incredible lyricist, yeah. and did was that kind of direct? I mean, take a song like "Sorted for Easy yeah, Whiz." Yeah. You know what that song's about. Um, you know what it's about, but it's, it's it's not just about the subject matter. You know, it's about. It's about those characters that uh, you know whose perspective he's he's singing from, and that's that takes empathy to get inside people. You know, uh, Dylan can do that, and Jarvis can do it really well. He's always seeing it from you know it's like that Dylan line. You know, I, I, uh, from what is it? A positive before street. I wish for just one time I could stand inside your shoes, then I'd see what a drag is to be you. Uh, mm. Jarvis has got that, you know. He, he he can inhabit other people's souls and uh, talk from their perspective. But and also he can be a, a sort of dry-eyed observer as well. I mean, I always thought that the big flaw in Damon Albarn's lyrics was he he often sounded like he was judging people um, in the way that those Ray Davies lyrics didn't. And Jarvis never sounds like he's judging people. He sounds like he's either amongst. The people he's singing about, or he's he's inhabiting them. Although souls, common people you know? definitely um, is judgmental. Well, he's judging. Yes, he's judging the snob, isn't he? He's judging the snob who wants to, who wants to be with the common people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I, I see what you mean. Um, I don't think people. I, I think people felt Jarvis was one of them. Yeah, yeah. totally. And common people, even though everybody knew, understood the narrative of, of common people, that it was you know it was an ironic that you know it was an ironic phrase and in the song because it was coming from the the lips of this stupid Greek snob um, but it just transcended that it became uh, an anthem where all of us you know what well, I was in my 30s at that time but you know a whole generation of people within a sort of 20 year generation of people just went this is fucking British pop music at its zenith mm-hmm. it's it's caustic it's celebratory it's joyous it's funky you know mm-hmm. uh, it's just and it's funny it's got a sense and it's of funny humor. yeah like, Which, like, like you know when the Beatles made Rubber Soul they were trying to make a kind of comedy record 
uh, and a lot of King's songs are, are you know pretty funny and a lot of Dylan's really funny it's funny now you may you may um, disagree with me here but on your current album Delamitri's current album Fatal Mistakes I think um, Ray Davis is in the room with you a little bit uh, in, in on certain songs uh, I, that's not to say they sound like the Kinks, but just mm. more mm. that that kind of his again observant kind of songwriting yeah. and and social commentary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, my favourite song. Uh, I'm sure you won't be too surprised by this. Musicians and beer, mm. Mm. Um, which it's it's got to be one of the sort of heavier songs that you've yeah. done. It's yeah. got it's got a kind of in crowd down yeah, kind got, of uh, it's got a riff. It's got a riff, <laughs> but it also maybe taps into you know maybe you mentioned Oasis. It's got that. It's slow, but it's yeah. it's and it's got a sort of menace to it. But um, it's again, it's observing. Again, I might be saying the wrong thing here, but it, it's a song saying it's almost like an ode to the girlfriends and wives and people who've had to suffer um, relationships with musicians and their beer. Um, well, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> Is it yeah, so well, uh, tell me. I mean, uh, also another a key song on this album, I think, is um, "All Hail Blind Love," which, again, I might be wrong, but to me, it feels like you are commenting on social media, the polarization of. If, if only I was. If only I was that clever, Vic. <laughs> so I'm, I'm off the mark, am I? That's, no, but, it's great no, that because, I'm, I'm interpreting. No you're, no, you're not off the mark because the, the so, songs are... Um, the reason they work is because they're, they're open to multiple interpretations. And that, that doesn't mean that other people's interpretations are, are wrong or right. I've got my own interpretations, but sometimes my own interpretations change. They'll change of my own songs and of other people's songs. Sometimes I think, God, I, got, I totally misinterpreted that. When I was younger, and I think it's about this now, but that, that doesn't mean to say that you were that you you were wrong when you were younger, you know. There, and there's songs I've written where I've thought, well, this is about Auntie Peggy dying, you know. Mm -hmm. And then twenty years later, you go, oh Jesus, that's what that's about. It's about something else. Yeah. Um. So you, yeah, different things come out at different times. I think. But I'll, I, next time I sing that song, I will try and th think of it as a comment on social media. Oh, and just the polarization of, of thought and, and kind of mm -hmm. you know opinion mm -hmm. online. That's mm -hmm. what that's what it came across to me. That's yes, interesting. That's, isn't, like that. isn't it? Well, um, <laughs> uh, but I think fatal mistakes fits in perfectly with the Delamitri oeuvre. You know, the, I mean, what's the gap between albums? I mean, um, 2021, so you're talking like... Nearly what? 20 years. Yeah. 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 And yet to fit smoothly, and this isn't a wannabe record, this isn't a kind of, if only we were as good as we were back in the day. It fits in perfectly. Musicianship, songwriting, lyrics, production, the whole thing. The fans wow. are delighted by it. And it went top ten. It did. Um, that's very gratifying to hear. We, we were utterly paranoid about doing something that really either tarnished what sullied sort of reputation our catalogue has anyway, uh, trying to sound like young men, which we, we just knew was, we weren't going to be able to do. Um, so it was quite a tricky thing to negotiate all that, actually. A wee bit tricky to write, but then we, once we got into the groove of writing, it, was, it got easier. So I'm... I'm Look, I'm pleased to hear you say that because that that, uh, that sounds genuine and um, 
that was all we were aiming for was just to do something that sat alongside those other records from the 90s which are you know, I mean to a lot of people they're meh to some people they're their favourite records um, and to a lot of people they're just run of the mill you know run of the mill pop rock yet again um, self-effacing but no uh, I'm not, I'm not me so because I, I know you know the, 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 we've never made a significant record I mean maybe we've never tried to um, and we're not we're not in the vanguard of anything uh, but we, we, the one thing we were always really proud of is we tried really hard to make good albums that worked as albums. I mean, we weren't, you know, we were, we weren't like a Neil Young, you know, and we weren't, we were never going to make Astro Weeks. I mean, who is? But we tried really hard. You know? Well, the thing and is, there's, it, there's pockets of that that we go, you know, we almost succeeded there, and we almost succeeded there, succeeded there too. So, so to kind of almost succeed again is. At least we haven't completely let the side down, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, you certainly haven't. Um, and the album Ender, Nation of Caners, mm-hmm. uh, to me is... I mean, anyone would be happy to have a song like that in their, um, on their album, yeah, in their like catalogue. It's, it's a great album closer. It's, um, it's a great lyric. Um, it, again, more... I mean, I would, I would say Ray, Ray Davis is in there That's a little bit I, on that I listened one. to a lot of... When I was young, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, Village Green Preservation Society mm. is my favourite Kinks album, but I. I oh, Some oh, of the later ones are pretty interesting as well. The, yeah. The um, Muscle Hillbillies album yeah. is quite interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so I, 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 uh, I digress. It's, 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 I mean, getting out and playing again. I mean, tell us about your pandemic. I know it's been. I mean, we'd be daft not to speak about it. Has it been a good period for you in terms of writing? Uh, no, because all the songs you write are about being the pandemic, which have mm-hmm. um, no universal appeal because everybody's going through the same thing. So it's very hard to find things to write about. Uh, I ended up writing about chess uh, <laughs> just to find something to, to write about. Um, I, I found it, I've spoken to a few other songwriters who, who had a very similar experience. They found the whole process um, utterly deadening to, in terms of writing. You go to the piano and you just think, it's fucking lockdown. This is mental. This yeah. is mental, and that's that's the only thing in front of your face is that, and that's all you can write about. So you write a song about lockdown, and you got Christ, thousands of bands are writing songs about mm-hmm. lockdown, and they're all going to be as shit as this one, right? Uh, and they're all going to rush them out online to show how fucking sensitive they are, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but, but we, are you are you a prolific writer? Do you lockdown or not? Only you... when I set set out to be. So I tend not to be. I try not to be haunted by the spectre of the song why haven't you written me today you know um i leave it until i've got time and then i just go away and lock myself in a house for two or three weeks and then just try and write as many songs a day as i can and but do you have a pad next to the bed you wake up and scribble down a lyric yeah yeah i use i use my phone a lot so once my phone's got a lot of stuff in it i'll maybe go away and write those things up most things that come to you whether their titles are opening lines or a, a verse or two, the song's actually already complete in your subconscious. You just have to find the time and the space and the peace and quiet to sit down and, and kind of unravel it all. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe the opposite, maybe knit it all. Maybe mm-hmm. you know, knit the, the sort of unraveled bits. And what's that? That's that kind of line from Macbeth, isn't it? The, un, the sleeve of care or something. Um, but uh, so I'd, I... I'm prolific, but only in short bursts. Okay. I used to be much more regular as a songwriter. I used to write a couple of songs a month and maybe certain months I'd write a lot of stuff. 
And now I'll go for months and months at a time without writing, and I will not. I refuse to panic about it. Yeah, quite right too. Do you pick up the guitar and muck about, or only only when you're writing? I don't like picking up the guitar and muck. I I I like just waiting for ideas to present themselves, note them down somewhere, and then go back to them and flesh them out. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and usually when you go back to them, you you remember what the 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 concept was. Okay, Mm -hmm. this is imagine that happened to that person at the bus stop. Is actually waiting for that person, but uh, you know whatever it is. Um, usually, it's all keyed off from the, the few lines that you just write in a notebook. So you, that sort of allows you to get on with your daily life. <laughs> yeah, you're not constantly going, oh shit, I've got to go home and write a song. You know, I mean, who could be asked with that? I mean, that's like the Elvis Costello thing when he phones up his own answering machine. Who can be bothered? Mm-hmm. I want to. I actually, my, my thing about songwriting is, if you chase the songs you want of a life, and if you don't have a life, you can't write songs. So right. you've got to go to the pub. You've got to, you know, do what you do. Live a live a really, really normal life. And I mean that, that again. That's the other thing about lockdown. That was that me and a lot of other songwriters have been moaning about is that a lot of our songs just come from something that you've seen in a bar, mm-hmm. or something that's occurred to you, or that's reminded you of something. If you're sitting in your house watching the telly and reading books, songs don't come from there, really. You know, I mean, not for. Not for me, they don't. I need to be in life. Yeah, in, in, in living my life and seeing other pe- bits of other people's lives and thinking, I wonder what that, what does that guy think? What does he do when he goes home? How does mm-hmm. he treat his wife? You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're not exposed to that, I think you're kind of screwed. Yeah. Um, going back to the whiskey, Sorry. how are you getting on with, the, with this? <laughs> no, no, we'll, we'll, cause we, uh, as I say, the podcast could be you know seven hours long. Moving on to the next whiskey in a minute. Um, wh- how are you feeling about this one? Well, are you enjoying I, it? I, I am enjoying it because it's, it's, I think it's very short, so it's not, it's not kind of big and fruity. No, it it's, seems- it, it, it's, it's the flavour pro- profile, as I say, light and delicate. It is light and delicate, but it has a bitterness, a tartness to it. Um, it does, yeah. Um, I think it's quite sophisticated. I'm yeah. not sure if I'd have more than a glass of it. No, I, I, I'm probably with you on that, mm-hmm. I have to say. Um, so far, I'm still going for um, Monroe Magic, I is think. That is that number three? Is, that was number two. Number two, number two. Yeah. Number three, you finished, but it was, I think, your least favourite. Yes, yeah, okay. Yeah, yes, number well, two was um, nice. I'm actually going to leave that. It's not like me, but I'm going to put this one to the side, right. have a little sip of water, and then we'll move on to the last dram and the last piece of music. Dram number five. Um, the Gum Gatherer's Log Cabin. <laughs> the Gum Gatherer. Um, that's that's a, that's a, a yet another great title, um, and and much darker in 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 it hue is. and colour. Um, it's it's more of a caramel. This one. Are you supposed to swill whiskies like like you do wine? I yeah. mean, you, you swill them around the glass. Yeah, I think aerate it. And, yes. Uh, right. Now. Uh, this isn't part of the um, flavour profiles, the 12 fa- flavour profiles. It says single cask spirit. Mm. It's from Kentucky. Right. Um, it's aged 11 years and it is um, 61.4%. Keep the strongest till last. And 64.1%. the cask. 61.4%. Sorry, 61.4%. And it's a new charred oak barrel. Right. So. A little bit of the um, description. The nose evoked a log cabin in the snow, fire in the hearth, polished Amish furniture, and the sweetness of maple candles. Sorry, candies. 
golden meringues, vanilla custard slice and rum-soaked raisins. The palate, woodier than a beaver's breakfast, had dried <laughs> apple rings, ice cream wafers, honeycomb, candy corns and toffee. Hints of clove and smoked venison teased the finish. I get the custard and the clove, maybe. Right. There's cloves in custard, isn't there? Custard's flavoured with cloves, surely. Mmm. So this is a it's, corn whiskey, right? Yeah. So it's not... It's from... What state? Kentucky. Kentucky. Where I've never been, sadly. So so why is it not a bourbon? I don't know. Uh, maybe it is a bourbon. Maybe it's uh, the closest a, a malt whiskey can get to so a bourbon. Kentucky's the bourbon state, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, yeah, really. Not Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. So maybe this is Kentucky's attempt at, at a making malt a, a malt whiskey instead. The nose is much sweeter. Mm-hmm. Mm. I definitely got the custard thing. Right, I'm, go- I'm going for a taste. For, taste very, very woody, very oaky, without the water in it. I'm saying low to put water in this. Oh for some goodness reason. me! Yeah, utterly different from. Yeah, me. it is. I mean, there were comparisons with the first four. Yeah, yeah. This is utterly different. Yeah, it's a corn whiskey. It's still, it's, it still is a whiskey. Yeah, but oh, it's, definitely, it's not a bourbon, but it's got lots of woody, tarry kind of bitter um, so I, can, can I ask you of any of the previous whiskies we have drunk are, are any of them peaty um, the first one was lightly peated right okay um, so and, and you could taste but it wasn't heavily peated no, okay, so it right. wasn't it wasn't sort of that overriding so something CCP. like Lafroig or Kale Isla that's they're really peaty yeah like, they're heavily okay, peated yeah yeah so you've gone for, you mentioned them earlier on, Prefab Sprout, uh, Bonnie from the album Steve McQueen, 1985. You've kind of, I suppose, compared the early incarnation of Delamitri to Prefab Sprout. Um, Paddy McAloon, the songwriter's songwriter. Um, they're, they're, they're a bit Marmite, I suppose. Um, yeah. A lot of people absolutely love them. For, for me, I sort of... You know, what was I? I went to my first gig in 1985. Um, I would have been 12, 13 years old. Um, it's 80s overload. Yeah, now I appreciate time, yeah. it in yeah. retrospect. I, yeah. I, I really like Prefab Sprout now. But at the time, it was too slick, too well produced. The jazzy chords yeah. and so on, which I love now, were, were maybe a little bit alien for me at the time. Yeah. But why what makes Paddy McAloon the songwriter songwriter well I don't know I mean, because he isn't he isn't for me but uh, but he is a genius mm-hmm. um, I mean for years in spite of how 80s-tastic it is the records yeah. got um, you, you know the enemy almost to a man just lavished praise on this great British songwriter which I never quite got I, I, I never hated them I just never loved them um, we did a wee uh, a wee club night thing the friend of ours um, in the early 80s in the Lorne Hotel in Glasgow and we kind of did a kind of swap with some kitchenware bands and Prefab Sprout were a kitchenware band they were on this Newcastle indie label kitchenware because they're um, from Durham aren't they yeah, yeah. that's, right, yeah, that's yeah. right Yeah. so they came up uh, and we were supporting them and they were headlining so we got the, we hired a PA for them and I kind of helped them sound check and they did the most amazing soundcheck I've ever seen in my life. It was just, it was, you would all, it would almost made you cry. It was that good. The voice was incredible. The songs, the lyrics, everything about it was phenomenal. So I kind of phoned up a few mates and said, "Look, you've got to see this band. You know, they're just, it's quite something." Um, 
and they were shit. They were they were awful. They just on the they, at the on, gig on the gig. Oh no! Uh, which some bands are. I mean, I've, I've seen this before with with bands. They are they are absolutely incredible at the sound check, and they give everything at the sound check, which is a really stupid idea in the first place. And then they stiffen up or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sound check always meant I had a huge fondness for for what Paddy does and what, what the group represents. And then, as you say, they started making these very twiddly, overproduced eighties sort of records. But recently, I was sitting in a tour van. It must have been a couple of years ago, and I just listened to the whole catalogue on a, some streaming service, maybe Spotify. I can't remember. It might have been Tidal. And uh, um, I suddenly realised how original what he does is, because it's somewhere between Burt Bacharach and show tunes of the forties and sort of cheesy. 70s American pop or something. It's mm-hmm. a really mad combination. Yeah, what a of bit things. of bread and things yeah, like that. That's in right. There, yeah. Stuff that we would hate, you know, or, or do hate, you know. Uh, and the lyrics are again really hard to pin down, but they're they're extraordinarily original. And I, I suddenly understood why those enemy journalists who are paid to be experts and, and where are the experts of the day, you know, uh, were saying this guy's the bee's knees, you know, he's the the, the great uh, British songwriter. Uh, so I mean, the, the reason I kind of got this is I saw this as corn whiskey, and I know he he, he mentioned, mentioned the phrase, and and one of the songs on the first album he mentioned the phrase corn, the word cornball, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I think whiskey comes up in one of his songs as well. And it, it Prefast Sprout was suddenly sort of calling me for some reason. It should have been Tim Harden, mm-hmm. but Prefast Sprout just got the. Uh, it this whole process is unbelievably subjective. It's organic, man. It's, it's organic, <laughs> and you've got to, you, you know you've got to go where you. I did a a, a pairing and flavour uh, tasting with uh, Jura uh, whiskey, um, various a couple of different types of Jura whiskey, and I it just evoked certain connections I had personally to Jura and and things that I loved about Jura and knew about it. Did those whiskies to other people? You know, mm-hmm. paired nicely with the KLF mm-hmm. or with David Bowie, the mm-hmm. tracks I chose, mm-hmm. possibly not. Mm-hmm. But it is a subjective thing. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Paddy would. Well, I don't know, but I would imagine <laughs> he would. He would uh, sit and have a whiskey with you and and happily take the compliments that you've been paying him. Um, King of Rock and Roll's their big tune, prefabs, right? Yeah. And and I looking back on that super eighties production, it mm-hmm. sounds innovative now. Yeah, um, yeah, and um, well, the Thomas Dolby produced record that, that, that this song's from is incredibly sophisticated, but again, very much of its sophist. Was it sophista pop? Yeah, is that what they yeah. call it? Yeah, um, uh, Fatal Mistakes has gone down brilliantly. Um, what's you've been touring as well? Was it nice playing in front of actual humans again? It was very gratifying and very nerve wracking. I was amazed how relaxed the crowds were, just sitting there unmasked next to each other in theatres. Very, very relaxed in Scotland as well as, as well as England. Um, so you had some, you had to remind yourself sometimes on stage that we're not living in normal times because it felt normal on stage. Backstage, completely different kettle of fish because we're in a bubble. Only certain people are allowed in the dressing room. You can't see your guests after a show, which is quite odd. If you've done a really good show, you want to sort of talk to, if not your guests your bandmates guests and mm-hmm. see what they thought which you can't really do you're going to meet people outside 
that's all a bit odd. There's no photos and selfies and No, and I mean, that's kind of a good thing because selfies are a bit of a pain because nobody can ever work their fucking phone. Oh, right, okay. Um, <laughs> or it's the person's phone. Uh, well, let me do it, let me yeah, do it. They yeah, give, they give the phone to somebody else and it's, just, and it's very time-consuming. Mind you, signing autographs is very time-consuming. I'd rather just shake people's hands and say hello and then, you know, goodbye. It's, there's, I, think, I think when you meet people that you admire... Mm-hmm. You feel you're embarrassed, so you say to them, "Can you sign this?" Because that's a formal thing to do. Um, and I've, I've suffered from the same thing when I've met people that I've admired. I've just thrust something in their in their face and said, "Sign that." But it's, it's all it's all a bit odd that. So I don't think we missed that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been a quite a slightly odd experience of. But more the human connection with friends and associates. Just, and colleagues just, and just shaking people's hands that say, "You know, I really like your music." That's nice. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I haven't missed the kind of cuddling up and getting your arse felt in selfies. <laughs> right. <laughs> what, what, I don't uh, mind getting my arse felt. I'm not precious. But, you know, come on, you're taking the piss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what about, um, what's next? I mean, more Delamitri or solo albums or... I've not got... Um, we've not even mentioned the Uncle Devil show either. I don't know who they are, but... Uh, yeah, the the, the uh, secret. I know nothing about uh, the secret trio. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm not looking at doing more solo records in the in the immediate future. I, I would like to do another, or we'd like to do another another record. And we sh- we wrote a shitload of songs for uh, for this. But it, you know, the big question is where do you go next? What do you do? Do you do something really commercial and really piss people off? Uh, are you even capable of doing that, or do you, do you do something really out there? I don't know. I, we, we haven't really. Kraut rock album, yeah. Well, Ian, drone rock. Ian would love to make a Kraut rock record. Well, we actually we did do it. We we wrote a Kraut rock rock song called Treadmill, which I thought was genius. Good, good name for a Kraut well, we, rock. We had a, we had a whole. Does it go? No, 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 and finishes at the slowest possible tempo, but in the meantime, it goes to the highest possible tempo over the course of a, of about thirty minutes. Or wow, something. we loved it, but our manager didn't think it. Our manager I, didn't think it had radio. The Delamitri radio fans of the world may go, "Hmm, interesting." Well, we did a bunch of stuff like that in the zeros, uh, mm-hmm. and I I tickled some of the MySpace. The Sucker album. I mean, that's the um, that's when you experimented with beats and bleeps and. Collage and so on, didn't you? What's what was that? Um, your the album after Twisted. Oh, the album after no, that was some of the circus play. That was our power pop album. No, was, sorry, that was the, a bit the, of a flop. The, the two albums <laughs> after Twisted. Yeah, there was an album called Can You Do Me Good, which had a bit of looping on it and stuff because Ian had got into modern technology, but it was quite polite. But it would you would radical. you in, like inflict that upon your? Public who kind of want well, we were, you know classic Delamitri. We, we did. We made an electronic record in the zeros, as I say, which I really loved, and everybody that heard it heard it hated, and so we just couldn't really, we couldn't really get it out. So um, and that's a, probably the reason why Fatal Mistake sounds like a Delamitri record because we sort of came full circle. We went kind of as far away from what we're supposed to do as possible, which we really enjoyed. It wasn't released. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a good thing it wasn't released. I don't know. I still listen to it when I'm. I still You've listen got, to it. You must have a, an archive of stuff that should go out online at some point. Or, I mean, you could dump it all in SoundCloud, but no, you know, nobody would listen. I mean, there's too much music out there. In fact, as you were saying, there's so much music. There's so much good music. Um, 
that's, that's just... there's, there's also a lot of bad music. No, there is a lot of bad music, but uh, it, it, sometimes it terrifies me how much music there is. What, initially... what they're saying is between 20 and 40,000 songs are uploaded to Spotify every week, or is that every day? It can't be every day. Um, every week. Between every week. 20 and 40,000 songs yeah. every week. I mean, yeah. globally, but there are 52 it's weeks just, in the year. It's crazy. It's crazy. Which I suppose, you know, if you wanted to be a real miner of jewels, you could spend a lifetime trying to find the strangest, oddest things. I subscribe to a, a really good little app called Radio Ooh. Have you heard of this? Radio mm-hmm. Ooh. It's radio followed by five O's, I think. Mm-hmm. And what that is, it's a really tightly curated world encyclopedia of music mm-hmm. so all these cool, that sounds like right up my street all these cool record collectors I think it's quite French based mm-hmm. um, but you know guys from France and the UK probably DJs a lot of it's quite kitsch but it's really top quality kitsch and it gives you a map of the world and you can point at Senegal 19 from the 20s through to the present day so you can go 19, Senegal 1930s and there'll be like the maddest or the most amazing things on there. Some countries they'll only maybe only have 20, 30 recordings from particular decades. It's all divided into decades. Um, other countries there'll be lots. But if you go to, it's really well curated. It's really cleverly done. You know. Uh, I'm, I'm after this is over. I'm, I'm taking I'll that sh- down. I'll and show I'll, you the Yeah, no, please good. do. Yeah. That sounds exactly up my street. Um, we're, I suppose we're coming to the end. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, drinking the finest whiskey known to man. I'm How enjo- are you I'm enjo- on with the... Uh, I'm enjoying the corn whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't water this one down. I have to say, this is, of all the tastes, this is the harshest. Mm-hmm. It's the, the most pungent. It's the most ass-kicking. It's got that bitter wood that. thing going on, yeah. It's got a wood thing going on. Wood. But it's, mm-hmm. again, it's nice, nice to drink, nice to sip. Um, enjoy... What happens next with Delamitri? Thank no you. No solo albums, but Delamitri albums, Krautrock, Synth, Drone, <laughs> whatever may come next. And um, thank you for sparing some time to chat to me about all this music, which will be on a Spotify playlist. Um, anyone that's enjoying the chat and the anecdotes and so on, go and search out the playlist and have a listen to all these tracks. I mean, yeah, the, the Gillian Welch track is 15 minutes long, so you can definitely have a dram or two to that one. Um, Justin Curry, a pleasure. Thanks My for pleasure. joining Th- me on Mox and Music. Thanks for introducing me to these interesting uh, drums. Yeah, great. Slange. Cheers. Slange. Cheers. Thanks for checking out Malts and Music. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, we are building a playlist of all the tracks discussed. You can find that on Spotify. And for all your whiskey needs, unfiltered, whiskey talk, and so much more, head along to the website smws.com. I'm Vic Galloway, this is the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, and I'll speak to you in a month's time. Uh-huh.